Good evening, everyone. I'm watching, this is my favorite part, watching the numbers jump up as people join the webinar. Welcome to the third in a series of Unspoken Truths. Just gonna allow many of you to join us before we officially begin. And I have the opportunity to introduce our fantastic panelists to you this evening. Um, let me see, last time I was waiting for it to get to a specific number. So I'm gonna see if it moves a little bit. If not, we'll get started. Okay, well, we will get started. It stopped the, the fast movement. So once again, welcome all of you this evening to Unspoken Truths. This is our third public forum on the murder of George Floyd race relations and the journey towards equity. Um, this evening, I am joined by um, three of our panelists at the current time. We have one other panelist we hope will join us this evening. Kimberly Kersey, who is the Executive Director of the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Daryl McGraw, who is the founder of, I'm gonna do the full bio shortly, actually. Um, Daryl McGraw, who is the founder of an organization called Formerly Inc. And Shauna Melson, who is the recipient of the Connecticut Office of the Arts Hero Award, a poet, painter, educator, and author. Um, I will read their full bios in just a moment, but, um, and then we have um, Tahiba Bain who will join us this evening. First, let me just thank all of our partners who made this evening possible. Um, for those of you who have not been with us in the previous two forums, um, this came about as a result of our conversations actually last fall um, or in the spring. No, it was the fall. Uh, when we spent time exploring the New York Times Magazine piece by Nicole Hannah-Jones on the 1619 Project. And it was an opportunity for us to take a look back at our history and certainly how systemic racism has continued to play a role as the legacy of slavery. We had no idea then last fall as we had those conversations that it would really be positioning us to have these conversations now. And so the, the organizations that came together to have the dialogue around the 1619 Project agreed after the murder of George Floyd that it was time for us to come together yet again to have dialogue around these very important topics. And so um, I just want to call the names of the organizations who have partnered to make this series possible. Um, first and foremost, Charter Oak Cultural Center. Donna Berman is out there somewhere. Um, she is responsible for pulling us all together. So thank you, Donna, for your leadership. Um, Nashama, um, Benai Tukol Shalom, Yukon Hartford, the Connecticut Mirror. Thank you, uh, CT Mirror, for hosting the Zoom webinar um, through each of our forums. Um, EMG the YWCA of Hartford, the Amistad Center for Art and Culture, the Heartbeat Ensemble, the United State of Women, the Mark Twain House and Museum, the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center, and the Thomas J. Dodd Research Center at the University of Connecticut. Um, all of those organizations and individuals representing all of those organizations have come together in one way, shape, or form to encourage dialogue and conversation in our community. 
So without any further ado, let me actually officially introduce our panelists for this evening. And then what I'll do is I'll ask them to kick off our conversation with just some words and reflecting upon from their vantage point, where are we now um, in the context of this conversation and certainly in the life of our nation? So first, let me introduce to you Shauna Melton. As I mentioned, She's a recipient of the Connecticut Office of the Arts Hero Award, um, a poet, painter, educator, and the author of Unraveling My Thoughts. Her contributions to Connecticut's vibrant poetry scene include arts ambassadorships for the Mary and Eliza Freeman Center for History and Community, the Housatonic Museum of Art, and the founding of the Open Mic Institution that is Lyrical Voices, a local showcase for contemporary poets and slam artists from across the region. Her current exhibition, Her Dragons Fly, is online at the Charter Oak Cultural Center Art Gallery. You can find and support her work at her website, poeticsoularts.net. Thank you for joining us, Shana. Thank you for having me. We also have Kimberly Kersey. Kimberly is the Executive Director of the Amistad Center for Art and Culture, a role that she's held since earlier this year. Kimberly came to the Amistad Center with 25 years of legal, business development, and community relations experience. She graduated from Rutgers University with a Bachelor of Arts in Art History. While at Rutgers, she was an intern at the New Jersey State Council on the Arts and completed her senior study work in African American art. She went on to earn a JD from Villanova University School of Law and is admitted to practice in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. While in law school, she worked with the Philadelphia Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts, where she counseled artists on issues involving copyright, gallery agreements, and arts-related contracts. A strong believer in civic engagement, Kersey has long been active in local and national politics. She served as assistant counsel to New Jersey Governor James McGreevy, where she was his liaison to the New Jersey Department of State, home to the State Council on the Arts. Additionally, she served on the policy transition teams for President Barack Obama and for Senator Cory Booker. Welcome, Kimberly. Thank you, Joelle. Next, we have Daryl McGraw. Daryl runs a criminal justice consulting company called Formerly Inc. that promotes restorative justice. And he's also a co-chair of the state's Police Transparency and Accountability Task Force, which was formed in late 2019. Daryl holds state certifications as an addiction counselor, recovery support specialist, and a criminal justice professional. He holds a bachelor's degree in human services and a master's degree in organizational management and leadership, both from Springfield College. Prior to entering the human service field, Mr. McGraw held several leadership positions in the hospitality field, working for Fortune 500 companies. As the former program director for the Yale University Department of Psychology, psychiatry, he was contracted to serve as the director of the Office for the Office of Recovery Community Affairs for the State of Connecticut Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. Darrell has experience in the areas of policy development, contract management, and project coordination, as well as collaborating with grassroots peer advocacy agencies and the Connecticut Department of Corrections. Mr. McGraw is a community organizer, activist and philanthropist. 
He serves on several boards involving reentry and criminal justice reform in the state of Connecticut. He regularly consults with law enforcement, universities, policymakers, behavioral health and addiction treatment facilities who are looking to expand their knowledge and expertise in the area of criminal justice reform. He is an integral part of leadership decisions for these agencies and organizations. As a leadership consultant, Mr. McGraw inspires cultural competency and challenges organizations to move away from the status quo. So if you all would, in your homes or wherever you are watching from, uh, welcome all of our panelists that have joined us this evening. So as I mentioned, um, what I'd like for each of you to do is just to give us um, some perspective as to your vantage point, what brings you to this conversation? What are the unspoken truths that we um, have had to acknowledge as a result of not only the killing of George Floyd, but subsequent incidents and the awareness of racial inequity, not just as it relates to law enforcement, but much more broadly as it relates to systems within the United States. Is there any one of you that would like to begin? I'll jump in. Great, Kim. So the Amistad Center is primarily a gallery space, but so much of our mission is really around being a place of learning and, and connection for the community. Um, as a point of reflection, I, mean, I personally believe that art can be, can be a healer. Um, we've continued to do much of our work virtually since the pandemic began. And, you know, in light of the long list of murdered Black lives, um, we feel strongly that we need to make sure we continue to be of service and be a place of reflection for the community. So we look at our center both as a, you know, a gallery to exhibit art, but also as a place to gather and in these, these times, a place to heal. Right now we're gathering virtually, um, but we're doing our best to stay in, in close contact with the communities we serve. Um, thank you, Kim. And just last night, the Amistad Center hosted um, a virtual jazz concert, um, one in a series of concerts that you all should be on the lookout for, because as is evidenced by our panel, but also as we know historically, it is the arts often that allows us to express ourselves um, in these times where, where sometimes our words might fail us. So um, thank you, Kim, for being here this evening and adding that valuable perspective. Um, who'd like to go next? I can go. Anna? Um, Excellent. I almost called on you since I made that comment about the arts. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. Things first, things first, so you know. <laughs> My mother might be watching, so I got to be respectful. <laughs> Thank I you. Think that, um, I think that as a culture, not just Black culture, but American culture, we're surviving a double pandemic. I think a lot of times we um, look at it as what's happening to black people, but what happens to black people happens to all people, you know? And I think people are realizing that because they don't have a choice right now. Um, and, and there's so much attention put on it. And I'm praying that there's longevity and more people understanding that it's a cultural as a whole issue um, and just want more integrity to come through right now. But I also think that surviving the pandemic of COVID alone and having the clarity of mind to know how to articulate and, and 
counteract and fight back oppression um, is something we're going to have to definitely continue to do, but also continue to do healing work from. I think that's where art comes in. Um, it tells the story. It gives you a new perspective. It gives you a chance to be honest about where you are. You know, don't let someone else tell your story. This is your chance to do it. This is your chance to be honest. I think for Black people, it's beautiful that there are so many Black artists who can do that and have a platform and visibility because that has not always been true. Um, so in terms, of, in terms of equity, I think we're creating our own equity and people are going to have to show up for it because they can't hide it now. You know what I mean? They can't put it away. And I think that's a beautiful thing, but I also think it's unfortunate because if we should be doing anything right now, we should be able to just hug and sustain and love on the people who are surviving because we are all surviving clearly different things. Um, but I, I'm just proud of us because we're seeing these things and we've always fought back. We've always stood up, but we're not letting something that's, that's we're not letting anything overshadow it. You know, and I think that's courageous and it's beautiful, sad, and, and God, can it, can it just be enough, but beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting juxtaposition of feelings. There's, you know, a range of emotions, I think, in any given day that we might feel, right? Literally from joy at the unity that is expressed, but also really utter despair as we continue to watch um, our um, brothers and sisters and, and, and trans brothers and sisters being um, gunned down. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Daryl, thank you, Shana. Mm -hmm. So first I want to just thank everybody for being on the panel. It's an honor and a privilege to be on a panel with um, strong black women, you know, an opportunity to uh, voice my opinion. And, you know, really for me, I bring lived experience to the table, you know, unspoken truth, let's talk, let's have this conversation. You know, um, two months before George Floyd, Mr. Prude was killed. He was butt naked in the street, surrounded by white officers, and he was teased. You know, 2007, May 2007 in New London, Connecticut, I, I was in, on the ground in a fetal position and I was teased and officers laughed at me and told me that I was scum of the earth. And as I screamed, thinking it within inches of my life, you know, they said, look at him, look at him, he's a baby, right? So by the grace of God, I say here today and being able to speak to you and be that, like, you know, that guy that light to be saying, let's talk about, not only let's talk about this, but we need action. We need to move forward because not only by just, I could easily, when I see George Floyd, Mr. Prude and many others, I, I feel like that could have been me. That easily could have been me. And you know, I'm a person in long-term recovery, which means I haven't used the substance since May 7th, 2007, nor have I been in the back of a police car since then. And this is, this today, September is recovery month. And this is a month that people that are in addiction recovery celebrate. But I cannot celebrate recovery right now because right now, as a black man, I live in fear. Not only for myself, for my son and anyone that looks like me. So no matter, I really appreciate the bio and the, and the letters behind my name. You know, those are some accomplishments that I've accomplished and super proud of over 10 years. But let me tell you that that 
all those letters behind my name. That master's degree will not stop a bullet when the police pull me out of the car because I'm driving while being black. So we need to really have these conversations. Let's, let's go, let's have these conversations. I want, I, want, I want us to open the door and really anytime we come together, we need to be truthful, we need to be honest, and we need to talk about what can we do to, to, to come together as a community because you know we, for a long time, we talked about the crabs in the bucket syndrome. But let's talk about what we can do as black and brown people to protect ourselves and move forward so our voice is heard very loudly and clearly and no longer, and I'm just gonna say this early, and stop trying to sit at the table and let's get our hammer and nails out and start building our own tables. Let's go. All right, call to action in the beginning of the panel. So everybody get ready. Ready. So I want to let all of our audience know that there is the opportunity for you to engage in the dialogue via the Q&A. So if you have a question, please feel free to, to type it in the Q&A and we will do our best to answer as many questions as possible. You know, one of the things that I have not been able to let go of as I prepared for this evening was the fact that when we held the first forum, um, just three weeks, I believe, after George Floyd was killed, we were very clear about that almost being the thing that was going to change things, right? And I, I got really um, sort of deeply uh, pensive earlier this evening as I reflected on the fact that, you know, while that event really changed the lives of people in the United States, we have not really made much ground since then. You know, I, I just couldn't, I'm thinking to myself, it's, it's been three months um, plus since we literally watched George Floyd have his life snuffed out in front of us on video. And yet we literally just um, began to see, um, you know, continuing issues, not only with um, people continuing to be um, shot or even killed, but hearing stories of like Elijah McClain years ago that we didn't even know had happened, um, things of that nature. It's hard to not get into a, a, a spirit of despair. You know, so as we reflect on this time that has passed, um, where are we now? You know, we, we've, three months have passed. Uh, we're entering a time frame where our nation is facing an election that will be significant in the lives of, for sure, um, of black and brown folks in this nation. But where are we now as we reflect? Um, what has changed in the three months since George Floyd lost his life? You know, that's a, an interesting question, Joelle, and uh, one that I think a lot of us are struggling with. And unfortunately, I, uh, the, the conclusion that, that I've come to is, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, you know, Daryl, you mentioned in your comments, um, you know, the idea of driving while black. That's something that really um, has resonated uh, with me now more than ever. Um, at the center, we're looking at uh, mounting an exhibit next year focusing on that topic. Um, there's a, 
a book uh, out by Gretchen Soren called Driving While Black and a documentary that, that speaks to the book. Um, and our thought is just to kind of talk about that, you know, how back in the you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, this idea of being a black American and being able to drive and the freedom that afforded you, um, you know, that meant one thing, um, but it also just created a whole nother host of, of problems and concerns and they haven't gotten any better. You know, we talk about, you know, the lynchings and things that happened roadside um, back in the civil rights era, um, but these things are still happening today. So our hope is to be able to kind of show a historic chronology of, um, you know, that black mobility, literally mobility being on the roads, the freedoms that that gave folks to be able to travel, to not have to suffer the injustices of, you know, riding on the bus and waiting in colored waiting rooms. But it also opened up a whole nother can of worms um, that we're still dealing we're still dealing dealing with today. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. What do you think? Where are we now? What has changed since um, in the last three months? What has changed? I think, I think it's too quick to claim change. Mm -hmm. I think people need time to change, and I don't mean like they haven't changed their mind, but I, I need proof first right? Like, I need to see things are different. I need to know that, you know, a whole lot of Black men and women made it home without being killed. I need to, you know, see some justice in the court system for the people who have been killed. I need to see the change before I can say, just like people talking about the new normal, we're, people are still dying. We're not in the new normal yet. I, I think it's too soon to claim a new, um, a new space when we're still trying to fight our way out of the previous one. We're in the middle ground, I feel like. Yeah, absolutely. Daryl? So I think that, you know, I agree, I agree with my fellow panelists. I agree, but they also say there has been some change, right? We're having this dialogue right now. That wasn't happening before. Everybody was kind of going their own simple way, doing their own thing, you know, doing the me thing. And now we're starting to do a little bit more of the we thing, right? We're also starting to be able to identify our allies. We're starting to see people who are, I mean, there's clear through social media, through working with people, you can clearly see where people stand, right? They'll tell you straight up. Like, you know, I, I drive in certain places. I was in a, I was in a real, real upper suburban area yesterday, and I saw a lot of Black Lives Matter signs on the ground. And I was surprised. I was kind of scared driving through the neighborhood. Then I started seeing the signs. So I was like, well, maybe at least I might be all right on this street, but I don't know what's going to happen on the next street. But what I do see is we do see allies, but we also see people who oppose, who are seriously strong about, and their opinions are strong. And you know, we have that saying, when someone tells you or shows you who they are, please believe them. So we cannot be, we cannot be uh, misconstrued about where we're going. You clearly heard what they said right, about you and, and, and how they feel. But yet we're still trying to intermingle and change their thought process. We need to say, okay, you have that. That's one thing about the South. The South will be like, I don't like black people. No problem. You know, they, they do their thing. They might even do business with you. I don't like you, though, because you're black. In the North, we have white people who will smile in your face and 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 right behind there be like i can't stand it now don't get me wrong we got black people that do that too but when we start to talk about doing business in places of power and how things are 
we are starting to see the shift of people are overtly racist. So there's a change. And then you also see people who are like, you know what, that's wrong. And you know what, I didn't realize that, that I lived in this bubble of privilege. And how can people say to me, my white friends say, how can I use my privilege to move forward in the movement? And that's where I think we capitalize at, if we wanna see change, those people that do see, that see everyone as human beings, then we need to start making those, seeing how that works for our, works in our favor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I think too, to your point, you know, the notion of the two Americas or just simply how polarized we are as a nation plays a significant role in our ability to move beyond awareness and to action. Um, we still live, you know, to your point, in very racially segregated, um, particularly in Connecticut, our towns and our cities are, are extremely racially segregated. And so it does not allow us access to people who look different from us. We don't understand the lived experiences of individuals who might be different from us. And we rely on the assumptions and the stereotypes that we see based upon social media or, you know, what is reported in the news, which oftentimes disproportionately positions people of color in a very negative light, particularly black men. What do we do about the notion of these two Americas that we live in, that we um, have no bridge, if you will, to allow us to understand the experiences of individuals who, who might be different? How do we begin to bridge that gap so that we can change the notion of the polarized nation that we live in? How do we bridge that gap? I can jump in first. Sure. Um, so I'll use this example that I've used on numerous times before um, in reference to the marches. Let's just look at the marches. So we had a lot of Black Lives Matter marches, right? And I have white friends who go and they say, wow, that was very powerful. We went to Starbucks, got our coffee, then we went to the march. And I'm like, well, how many black people did you meet? They're like, oh, no, we didn't meet any black people. Okay. So then I talked to my black friends. Oh, we went to the march. It was 5,000 people, man. It was crazy. We got our signs and we was there and we was marching. I said, well, how many white people did you meet? They're like, none. So here are 5,000 people who all are like-minded, came for the same reason, yet there's no collaboration, no connection. If you're a white financial advisor, say, you know what, I'm going to take Tuesday nights from now on and I'm going to go into the inner city and I'm going to teach financial wellness. If you are a black chef, black artist, I'm going to go and teach art classes or I'm going to teach because until we start educating each other, then that's where we dispel the myths about black people don't take care of their kids. You know what I mean? Or whatever the case may be that people have lived with for so long. But until you start interacting with each other, you'll always believe the untruths. This is why we're here tonight to speak about the untruths. You know, we do take care of our kids. We do pay our bills. Many of us, you know, we're very fortunate to even be on Zoom. Many of our people can't be on Zoom because they're not paying an internet bill versus keeping the lights on. So we need to be very clear about that, but interacting, being able to interact with those that are willing to interact and want to be educated in reference to how to interact with people of color. I think that's where the conversation about the change comes in. I think it's nice that people recognize the issue, but they need to fix it when they, where they have power. And I do think we need to create our own and build our own table. 
But if there's tables built and people are saying that they're not racist, that they see the problem, then pull the chair up, you know what I mean? And, and make space. And so that we don't have to work as hard because we have worked hard in this country. A lot of these things exist because of our work. And so it's time for some reward, you know? And it's time for, it's time for us to not always have to do everything on our own and it takes longer and we will and we have and we can but what about if we could experience the world the way other cultures experience the world and and that matters in our wellness and and it's just it's just so important so i'm i'm with it 100 percent. let's do it let's create it let's have it but the conversation i have been trying to have and um get some clarity about how we can get there is what about the stuff that we built already that other people are benefiting from? You know, what about taking some of that back, getting spaces at those tables? Because there's really nothing that exists that doesn't somehow stem back to our work. And that's true. I think it's interesting. Um, there's a couple of questions that have come in that, that really connect to this conversation. So I'm curious as to um, what you all think. So where I'll go back to is a comment that Daryl made um, a little earlier about the Black Lives Matter signs in neighborhoods. And so one of our, um, one of our viewers has asked, do any of you panelists feel that the Black Lives Matter signs are personally helpful to see in historically white neighborhoods? Daryl shared his reflection about, you know, potentially coming into a neighborhood and thinking, well, maybe I don't belong here, but the signs ended up being a welcome. Um, would you want to see all white allies displaying them or does it matter? Great question. What do you all think? I think it matters. Um, I, I do. Um, it, you know, not only is it a reassurance, like in, in Daryl's instance, I mean, you just looking around my own neighborhood, they pop up in some unexpected places and you're like, okay, well, you know, that, that, that's, that's good to hear and it's, it's good to see. Um, I almost feel like in this day and age, um, you know, we talked about people that were for us or openly against us, um, but there's also that group of people that just stay silent. And part of what I'm struggling with personally, and particularly it's with social media or, or acquaintances, people that I know socially, but not that well, and they just don't say anything or didn't say anything, or you kind of see their social media feed and they, they skirt around everything but that, um, that to me speaks volumes. I think we're in a, a point in society where if you're not anti-racist, well, then we need to question what's going on there. So seeing the sign is probably the most affirmative way that a person who is not of color can say, I'm with you. And I want my neighbors to understand that and everybody who drives by. Um, yep. I, think it, I think it says a lot. Yeah. It's courageous, I think, especially in a neighborhood where you know things exist aren't, that are in place that go against that belief system and you still have that out there and you're still standing up for what you believe in. It's not something to take for granted. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think the answer, folks, is go get your signs and display them so that your um, black and brown friends feel like they have allies, that you are right there with them. 
And don't just display them, but do something too, right? Have some conversations. We had another question where someone asked, what can a liberal white woman do to help? Now, for those of you who've been with us since the initial forum, you will know that in the first forum, when we received a question like that, I said, I'm not answering those. This is an opportunity for us to hear the voice of um, black and brown folks, particularly black folks who were on the panel. And you know, I think in many, many instances, there's this dialogue around Whose responsibility is it to do the educating? And I think what we've heard so far is that there is mutual accountability on all of our parts to ensure that there are ways to engage in dialogue and to engage in communication and education that allows people to grow and learn. So what I would say to that, and I, and I open it to the other panelists, but certainly what can you do to help? Well, yes, get your sign, right? But also have a conversation, take it one step further. Talk to that family member, that colleague who may not yet understand, who may not be ready to wear their sign um, or put their sign out in their yard, but have a conversation. So take it beyond just that sign. Take it to a conversation. Other folks, what are your thoughts? What can, what can our allies do to help in this situation, aside from putting a sign in their yard? I had a, a, an ally ask me that early on, right after the, the George Floyd incident. And, um, you know, at that point, I came back with a, a whole list of things that I thought that um, she might be receptive to. So I think she was asking from a really heartfelt place. But at top of that list for me is really, um, you know, saying something when you see it. It's having that, you know, we, we have friends and family members that um, say, off-color comments and maybe they're not blatantly racist, but calling those things out and not letting it slide, not letting the joke slide at work or the looks or the eyebrows or did you see her hair or what, you know, you got you to gotta stop that stuff and just um, calling it out when you see it. Absolutely. So it's not just about, you know, as we, as we used to say colloquially, don't just talk about it, be about it, mm -hmm. right? So put your sign up, but then have something to say um, to your colleagues or your neighbors where you can make an impact. Absolutely. Dal, did you want to add anything else uh, to the conversation? I really appreciate the, uh, the dialogue in reference to the signs. Like, don't let the sign be self-serving. Actually, you know, make sure that you say something. Because something that Kimberly said that was really cool um, was the fact that saying, saying nothing is saying something, right? You know, and, it, and I thought you were going to go hard on them, Kimberly, where you said if you're not anti-racist, then you know what the other, you know what you are, but she, she took it soft on y'all. We're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna rock with that. If you're not anti-racist, then you might be, right? So, and, and you might be rolling like that, you might not know that, but also, you know, you know, I've had that question numerous times. When George Floyd happens and then you're close to some black and brown people, check in with us. Hey, Kimberly, how's, how's it going? I saw that terrible thing on TV. You know, I can't imagine what that's like. How are you doing today? Because see, that's what we do. And then that will open some dialogue with your close friends. You know, I have one person that calls me every once in a while from Vermont. And they say, you know, I hope you don't get upset with the, the questioning that I ask you, but you're really my only black friend like that I feel comfortable having open dialogue with. So, um, you know, I see Tahibas in the building. How you doing? And um, we'll let her get into the conversation as well. Um, but yeah, check in, check in with your people and, and then find out because this conversation is, is, you know, we, it's a we thing. We do need to move forward. We do need to be checking in with each other and finding out just where we're at. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And that's a critically important point um, for us to think about, you know, as we operate together in community, what is our accountability to each other? Um, so as you all have noticed, our uh, fourth panelist has joined us this evening, Sahiba Bain. Sahiba, welcome. We are so glad that you made it in. Um, thanks to technology. You all didn't even know I was texting on the side to make sure that she got in. <laughs> Um, so we're glad to have you. And what I do want to do just really quickly is read your bio um, as a way of introduction and, um, and offer you the opportunity, as the other panelists had as well, to just sort of share um, your initial perspective and reflections on the topic, uh, Unspoken Truth. Um, also, and, uh, we wanted to pull over, too. Oh, and Daryl said you have to pull over. Somewhere so, safe. And <laughs> we don't want you, we want you to be safe. I'm going to read your bio and then it'll give you some time and we can still keep going. And whenever you're ready to chime in, um, feel free. So Tahiba Bain is the director of coalitions for the National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls. She works with various organizations around the country, building out coalitions surrounding criminal justice reform. She also founded Women Against Mass Incarceration, a grassroots nonprofit organization empowering the justice activism of women and girls. Originally from Brooklyn, Sahiba became a justice and education scholar in the summer of 2016. She describes her time in the justice and education program as challenging as she was just beginning to work full time and take classes. She recently graduated, or probably not so recently, this bio may be a little bit old. Um, she recently graduated. <laughs> Let's just say she holds a dual, dual bachelor's degrees in psychology and women and criminal justice from CUNY Baccalaureate Interdisciplinary and Unique Studies Program. She is a contributing published author to race education and reintegration, and she assisted with the legislation of Senate Bill 13 in Connecticut, which concerned the fair treatment of incarcerated persons. Whether she's advocating for policy changes or providing direct services to women and girls, Sahiba has dedicated her life to making change within the criminal injustice system. Welcome, Tahiba. I think it looks like you have pulled over. So we are going to give you an opportunity to jump into the dialogue. Um, again, everyone sort of just started out by just sharing their perspectives on where we are at this moment as we you know, reflect on three months, more than three months since George Floyd's uh, murder. Um, but now, you know, where are we? So if you would just share um, some of your initial thoughts and then we'll jump back into the dialogue. Got it? Oh, we, I think I can hear you, but it looks like you're still muted. Uh-oh. Uh that was your camera. Um, try the, the microphone looking red. It might be red on your phone. There we go. There we go. Okay. Um, <laughs> I apologize about late, guys. Um, I had a I had an emergency with one of my colleagues I had to take care of and thank you for um bringing me back in. Um yeah, the unspoken truth well, you know, in this day and age right now, we have to be very careful about who we are and what we do and what we say because anything we say can be used against us because of the color of our skin. 
and and the criminal injustice system need to come together. And I want to just piggyback off of what uh, my brother Daryl was saying and talk about how we need to pull together as a unit. And I think that if we work together as a collective, we will be more powerful and empowered to have a greater impact on the criminal injustice system. I believe that if we, you know, everyone is doing what they're doing. Everyone has their own agendas and that's great. And we can all meet every each each agenda. But if we do it collectively, it will be a greater agenda. It will be a, a greater impact, and each agenda will be will be met because we're looking for the same thing, which is um, unbiased. You know, stopping the racism, um, stopping you know cops murdering black and brown folks just because of the color of our skin, and uh, um, the stereotypical um, that they portray us under. And we need to just pull together and band together. And I think that if we as a community of color and community of, um, you know, of indecisiveness, we got to stop being indecisive and we need to stand together that we can have a greater impact. We need to, George Floyd, you know, sparked a national, national movement for, you know, stop the racism and stop the killing. But before George Floyd, there was many, many, many others, women and and children that was crossed and stopped in a crossfire, that was caught in a, um that that was caught in you know killed by by police officers, um, and I want to say about black on black crime, right? um, we say Black Lives Matter, and we focus all that energy and all that all that um on police accountability and police um brutality. And we not we we don't really spark the the light on our own community to say stop the black on black crime because Black Lives Matters not just when it comes to cops killing us but to when it comes to us killing us. And I think for the unspoken truth, that's what I I believe we need to um, bring to the forefront when we when we say Black Lives Matter and stop the injustices because if we don't understand that we are our own worst enemy taking out our own culture, taking out our own people, and how are anybody else going to take us serious when we want to say stop for police accountability? So we got this man called Trump talking about it's a war on the police when it's a war on on poverty. And we and, and if he starts rhetoric, that's that's another spin that we gotta now dismantle and have a disclaimer for. And I believe that if we just take a, a look within our own communities and our own selves and, and don't just pull out one on one particular incident or, or one particular part of a, a subject for, let's say, Black Lives Matter and say, well, let's focus on police brutality. Yeah, it's a crime. It shouldn't be happening. We need, they need to be held accountable. They need to stand, they stand trial. They be convicted. They need to be. They need to go to jail, just like anybody else that will kill a person. And we also need to look within our own communities and try to help reimagine our communities and rebuild and restructure our communities from within. So we don't have to call on the police. Police don't have to come into our communities and police our communities. We should be able to police and govern our own communities. And that's that's my outlook. And I don't know. If on the subject line, but that's what I have to say. Everything is on the subject because there's quite a few 
you know, systemic realities that are tied into racism. And so we have gone through a number of different areas. And actually, to the point that you just made, I'm wondering, Daryl, can you talk to us a little bit about um, your service on the um, commission around police accountability? You know, there's been a lot of conversation in particular as the legislature passed um, the bill in Connecticut that would allow for um, enhanced police accountability. Lots of debate uh, around that topic. So can you shed some light on that for us as it relates to what is being done um, to hold police more accountable for their actions? Sure, thank you for the question and good to see you, Tahiba. Um, it's always a pleasure to be in a room with you, even if it's virtual. Um, yeah. You know, being on a task force, so I'm the chair of this um, this police accountability task force. And the interesting thing is that I was actually selected to be the chair prior to George Floyd. So it was really kind of like, oh, I think it was some, you know, I'm, this untold truth, right? I think it was some tokenism. And initially, let's put a black guy with lived experience in a place, and then let's see what happens, right? You know, it'll look nice. We got some white police chief with this black dude there. We really ain't trying to get a lot of work done, but we're going to put them in this position and see what happens. Well, they didn't really understand what black guy they was put in position, right? So therefore, a black guy with lived experience that has been assaulted by the police department. So I do have a lot to say about that. Then George Floyd happened, someone that looked like me. So of course, we're going to push more and more. So now what we're having is these community conversations. We're talking to community members because number one, how many times have we had things decided without the community's input. So this is one of the things that I push hard on is I'm, I'm also the chair of the public awareness um, subcommittee, which is every Thursday until the end of September between um, 10 and 12, 10 and 12 and six and eight, we're having these um, open dialogue for individuals to come in and communicate or um, and su um, submit testimony in reference to what they think about police accountability, what it looks like, what it should be. But one of the things that we're looking like as a group is, you know, we're constantly always talking about what police accountability looks like. And then, you know, there is this, there's a lot of myths in this work. You know, a lot of myths, when we start to talk about defunding the police, you know, that narrative goes out like we're trying to get rid of police. That is not true. We have no intention, no one ever in any room I've ever been in talked about getting rid of police, but we did talk about redirecting funds, bringing funds to the community, teaching, you know, having our mental health workers be there on the spot when a, like something like what happened to Mr. Prude. You know, we start to talk about dignity. The brother was naked. The first thing I think of is where's his blanket? He's not, he doesn't have a weapon, clearly doesn't have a weapon. Let's cover this man up and get him some help. Nope, that didn't happen. He died that night right on the street in the rain, cold. Right? So when you talk about dignity, you talk about humanity, you talk about all these things, these are the things that we're trying to push in our state because we do not want what happened to Mr. Prude to happen in Connecticut. Right? So we have to be pushing that. And I think, and I'm going to end with this so we can keep the dialogue going. But one thing that saddens me is the nerve of police officers who we pay with our tax dollars had the nerve to go to the Capitol and say blue lives matter. Blue lives is blue uniform. You can take that off. We cannot take this brown skin off. So for you to compare that to skin color or what's been happening to us for over 400 years at the hands of people that we pay is insulting to black people across the country. And for them, I would have fired, if it was me, 
I would have fired everybody that showed up that day. Black, brown, I don't care if you there at a Blue Lives Matter rally, you should be fired. You should be terminated. And you can quote me on that because that is a career choice, not a way of life. Let's go. Absolutely. And not, not just a way of life, but that is your identity. That is who you are. And one, one, some, one of our um, viewers actually asked that very question. One thing that bothers me <clears throat> is that right-wing people like Candace Owens say that blue lives matter instead of black lives matter. And, and basically their question was, what are your thoughts? And I think you articulated very clearly. Um, there are a number of different scenarios that have been expressed. And so I'm sure many of you have heard them, but similarly, you know, if your house is on fire, when the, when the firefighters come, do you say all houses matter? No, your house is on fire and that's the one that needs to be addressed. And there have been many, many ways that people have attempted to explain the the um, the you know the sort of disconnect in the notion that anything else matches right um, that blue lives are equivalent um, to what we're speaking to in terms of individuals whose skin color um, is what is the thing that prevents us from equal access and being treated um, as human beings. So absolutely, you know, Daryl, you said it all. So we didn't even have to answer the question, say anything. Anybody else want to jump in? I would respect them more if they came out and, and legitimately said white lives matter and stop playing around with the blue line. Let's stop sugarcoating what you're really saying. White people matter more than black people or white lives matter to you. That's fine. Stop trying to hide behind the, a, a career choice, something that you can retire from. Just come out with your white life. So, I, you know, you can do that. You can do that. We're not going to be opposed to that. But the blue lives is an insult, especially with my tax dollars. And I pay a lot of taxes. So for my tax dollars pays your salary, you better not be marching nowhere talking about blue lives matter because I'm going to be looking for your pink slip. I think that I have a lot of, I think I have a challenge with the conversation of black on black crime in the same conversation as police brutality. I think they can be in the same room, but they're separate conversations. I feel like as police, they took an oath to protect and serve everyone. The everyday citizen hasn't. And so our conversation with what to do in our community about crime is a necessary, I live in Bridgeport, I'm gonna tell you. It's a necessary one and it's an important one and it happens way too much and it's, it really just, when you see the things that kids experience and the things they see on the way home and you, those conversations are all important, but it's not the same one as police brutality. And if our kids and our community can't call for help, that is beyond inhumane in a country where weapons are made available, where drugs are made available, where, where you know, black families have really been broken apart by the government and, and, and aid and there's so many things piled up that are legal against us. And so I feel like those are both important conversations, but the one with the police is the one where they promised that we could call them and be helped. Right. Nobody else did that. Right, yeah. Uh, I agree, I agree. And then I agree with you that this conversation, but understanding that we really, as black people, that's when we talk about the things that we need to do in-house, there's some stuff that we need to do in-house too, and I appreciate the conversation. That's not this dialogue, but we also understand that when I can kill somebody that looks like me, there's some self-hatred going on, and I don't right. want to be in the choir. So I want to understand that, that that's another dialogue that we should be having amongst our people 
that we need to go back in and start to instill that self-love. Because once you love yourself, see, I love myself today. So I'm not going to hurt anything that looks like me. I'm not trying to hurt nothing. I'm really trying to educate and uplift. So, and be that role model for those young people and everyone that change is possible and that we can do things differently. So we need to get into our inner cities. And, and I'm, I'm telling you that black on black crime, when we talk about it, it's, it's an issue that we need to address. When people bring it to the table, it's almost racist because it's a comparison. They use it as a comparison to the death that's happening by professionals. These aren't professionals that are killing each other. These are people who are lost and, and are killing each other because they're hurting themselves. Fatherless homes and poverty and all of those things are contributing factors. That police officer that killed that young black man came from a house with a white picket fence in a suburban area that didn't even live in that city. So that was just target practice. So let's be clear when we talk about what, how these killings are happening. Mm -hmm. And I completely understand and agree. And, and I think her name's Shannon. Shana. Shana. Hi, Shana. I live in Bridgeport as well. And, and exactly. I don't, I don't equate the two because there's, there's no, there's no equal to that. I just, my, my point is to what Daryl said. Your voice went away. Wait, wait, your oh, voice. Oh, sorry. Oh, there Can you, you hear me now? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I completely agree that they're 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 not the same and they cannot equal to the to the same magnitude because this is like you said, they, they did take an oath to protect and serve. Hell, we just had the Chief Perez get arrested this morning, right? So you know, because of the corruption that mm -hmm. that that is happening within our city in Bridgeport. And that right there speaks to the fact that, you know, the police brutality that was happening is 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 a profile right it's profile for people like that. Sir, when you sit back, we can't hear you for some reason. Okay, can you want me to yeah. okay, okay. So I, I I have my phone up here. So can you hear me now? Yeah. yeah. We'll turn the light on over here. Okay, now even turn the light on. So I completely agree. Like, don't please understand. I'm not trying to say that it's 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 equal to or it has anything to do black on black crime with police brutality. Murder, and because that's what it is. It's murder by the police. I just want to believe that when we're talking about black lives matter, we can't forget more mistakes, more mistakes, more mistakes. You know, and I think you make a, I think you make a really important point that takes us back to actually how we got to these conversations to begin with, because when we tie back or when we trace back the position that many black communities sit in today, that might cause individuals to believe that their only solution is to shoot someone who looks like them in the attempt to gain 
um, to gain money or to be able to support their families, there's a disconnect there because of the consistency of systemic um, oppression and lack mm -hmm. of access to services that have not been universally made available um, to Black communities for generations, right? So when you talk about, you know, and I think these are some of the things that we may, some of us know within our own communities, but certainly we may not even be educated around some of the things historically that we saw through the 1619 project that there are literally um, mm -hmm. a legacy of slavery that remains that is borne out in the systems that we see today, criminal justice system. Um, when you think about housing, particularly housing segregation and how people came to live in the neighborhoods that they live in, you know, um, how, when we learn and we become more well-versed as to how these systems have been created, that's the racism that we're talking about dismantling. Um, so there's right. so many there's so many implications to these issues that you know sadly it's not as simple as you know simply looking at law enforcement. We had you know black and brown brothers and sisters who've been gunned down by their own civilian neighbors right. who've decided to you know police their own neighborhoods. Um, we have, as you said, you know our our situations within our inner city communities where people are hopeless. And they don't feel like there's any other alternative to the way of life that's been presented to them um, mm -hmm. as opposed to having opportunities um, far and beyond. So we have to keep that in mind as well, um, the right. implications of the system more broadly. And, I'm and glad you brought that up. I'm sorry. No, and I'm saying we also need to think about the child welfare system that, that also dismantles and um, displace our children and that's another problem within a criminal injustice system that we overlook to um to to our shame yeah but that's okay i'm sorry go ahead kimberly <laughs> no i was just going to say i'm glad you brought that up joelle because i think a lot of times you overlook the fact that the color of your skin oftentimes dictates what neighborhood you live in where you go to school whether you have access to good nutrition the air you breathe the water you drink all these things tie together. And I'm so glad there's, there's more conversation happening around the fact that racism really is a public health crisis. This ties into not just your physical health and that, you know, that the, the chronic illnesses that come from not having the best services and circumstances, but I think even more importantly, public um, uh, mental health. And like when we look at, you know, Daryl, you mentioned Mr. Prude we talk about Elijah McLean, these were public, these were mental health situations that were not handled appropriately by police officers. Mm -hmm. And um, it all just kind of comes full circle. I think we have to really look at racism as being a public, um, a public health crisis. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. And each of the systems, whether it's, you know, whether it's housing, education, um, the criminal justice system, there are, as, as we know, you know, the, um, the sentencing, sentencing differences um, between sure. certain categories of drugs, um, the availability of grocery stores in some neighborhoods versus others, um, the kinds of foods that are available um, to us. And I think, you know, one of the things around sort of protecting and helping and educating 
the black community or the black and brown community more broadly is about creating these spaces to educate to allow us to understand one of our viewers typed in um, black on black crime is a symptom police brutality is mm -hmm. part of the systemic disease give folks better education jobs and more opportunities and you will diminish black on black crime you know, there are some things that we collectively as a, as a community have to begin to um, to gain some perspective and to see some hope, right? The challenge is that to, to Kimberly's point around mental health, you know, the situations that we see each and every day on social media, even more broadly, as we watch our brothers and sisters gunned down. Um, and, you know, and now even, you know, there are other forms of, of attack, if you will, within our communities um, uh, related to Shana's initial point about the double pandemic, COVID-19, um, and how that has disproportionately impacted communities of color. Um, and so how do we then move forward? How do we move beyond as a community? How do we begin to take those steps to create change within the community that will allow us to, um, to help educate more broadly beyond the Black community? What, what do we do? What are some of the next steps that we take? Can I just touch on Kimberly's point as well or add to it? Absolutely. That um, we, when we talk about mental health among Black people, I think it's very important. But I also think mental health issues among white people, for us and them, is also very important. I think the very twisted privilege we have is knowing our history in slavery, right? And it's such a twisted um, thing mm. to be grateful for. But we can we can say, well, this happened to our people and this happened to our people. We know that genetically things are passed down to us. Fears and trauma gets passed down to us through bloodline and through stories and through, you know, seeing things. White people have been in denial about their history and their role in slavery or they weren't taught it they weren't taught how violent it was they weren't taught how bloody and scary they weren't taught the psychology how twisted that is about owning another person or turning a person into something other than a person to justify making them a thing as opposed to a human right that's a that's a twisted psychology deep that they've never examined right and so we think we're, when you're in an argument with anyone, not just a racial one, you think they should know better than this, right? But if they've never been taught it, if they've been sheltered and bubbled, and this for a lot of people might be the first time they really had it in their face this way, you know? And so there's generational trauma rising up in them that they can't pinpoint. You show me a racist issue, I can say, well, my ancestors went through this and I'm not responding because of this and my great grandmother told me this. Nobody tells them. And mm -hmm. so they have this hatred they don't understand. They have this anger they don't understand. And so I feel like we both have work to do because a lot of us have removed ourselves as black people from that history because it's so painful too, mm -hmm. right? We don't deal with it. And so we have our work in our own culture but out like you said outside of ourselves they need a history they need a lesson they need an understanding of how tragic and bloody and what kind of holocaust slavery was for their own mental wellness because even thinking that this hatred only comes from you is a hard thing to confront but when you know it's been passed down to you when you know your bloodline did some things that 
shouldn't be really proud of when you understand that you are not the source of this. You can take less ownership and let some things go and change. That's really deep. Um, and yeah, no, I was just gonna I was just gonna mention that one of our viewers mentioned that the heartbeat ensemble, and I think I typed this into the chat. But Heartbeat Ensemble has been doing conversations for individuals who identify as white to navigate them through some of these issues, right? In ways that, you know, that not that people of color may not be able to help, right? In this moment, we often get the question, what can I do as a white ally? But I think to Shauna's very powerful point, there's some questions and some work that our white allies need to do for themselves. And so the, the program that the Heartbeat Ensemble offers is called Breaking White Silence, right? So speaking truth to power around some of those very issues that Shauna just mentioned. You know, what, what is the legacy of maybe not slavery for you as a slave, but what is the legacy? Where have you benefited? What is the privilege that you enjoy as a result of the position that you have in society? Um, so that is absolutely something that is a critical um, conversation to have. Yep, go ahead, Daryl. Mm -hmm. oh, no, I just want to echo what Shauna said, and you know exactly what you said. To just add to that is that, and when we when we look at you know Dr. Joy's book, post traumatic post traumatic slave syndrome, we start to understand that we talk about that intergenerational trauma that was passed down to slaves. Well, there was some intergenerational trauma that were passed down to white people too. Those same white people that watch the hangings and lynching, they are traumatized too. So when you hit, when they're in that dialogue and you say, listen, you got some trauma too from that. You know what I mean? It's not, everybody wasn't with that hanging and lynching and stuff like that, but this is passed down. So it's hard to process to even talk about. So the instant result or the response is a defense. I didn't own slaves. Our response is I wasn't a slave but I'm still traumatized by it. So you didn't own slaves, but you're still traumatized by it. So let's talk about the trauma and moving forward, this is where the healing starts. And you know, also we were talking about in our inner city going into it, we need to address the issues of trauma. That's one of the things that I talk about on a consistent basis in every training, because a lot of us, myself included, went through life to adulthood not even knowing I was a survivor of trauma because everybody experienced the shootings and guns and violence. So that was just an air that we breathed. We all experienced it wasn't different until you step outside of that bubble and realize, wow, that was some traumatic, wow, I still think about when Joe got shot. I still think about, or I remember when I lived a certain life that it was okay to hurt someone if they disrespected me. It was okay, that was the norm. So when you, like I said, when you step outside that bubble and start to do some real internal research that we all can do, we start to see where the trauma from historic all the way to our own personal upbringing has affected us. Mm -hmm. Now let's shift gears just a bit um, because we are on the heels of an election coming up both at the presidential level, but also let's not discount our local elections. Mm -hmm. 
And when we talk about, in particular, some of the, the legislation at the state level, I see a number of our viewers are inquiring about the chokehold law in Connecticut um, as applied for policing black and brown um, men, um, holding police accountable, the conversation here around bridging the divide. As we approach this election, what would you say to uh, our community more broadly, whether they be um, individuals of color or our white allies, as we take our, as we, as we go to the polls, right? So first, what I would say is vote, right? Um, but as we go to the polls, what are some things that are important for us to know and for us to share with our brothers and sisters? What should we be thinking about as we prepare to go to the polls? Um, <laughs> Daryl's like Kim. <laughs> I'm good. I just didn't want to. I don't want to. Like I talk a lot. You know, nobody listens to me in my house, so I talk. A lot. <laughs> I got a lot to say because nobody listens to me at home. So the one thing I was going to say is, I guess around that idea of aggressive policing, we there is we hear rhetoric now about law and order and how how that's important in the minds of some people. I really think we just need to have a mentality shift um, away from officers being viewed as enforcers and more to towards them being viewed as guardians, um, just a, a mindset shift of retraining. And I know, Daryl, you mentioned, you know, the conversations about defunding the police. That's that's not in anyone's uh, talking points. That, that, does, that doesn't even, um, I, I haven't heard any conversations around where folks would actually not want a police force to be there when they need them. But I think they need to be retrained. And I think we all recognize this, but we need to figure out what that exactly looks like. I think there needs to be bias assessments done before officers even get a badge and a gun. There's some folks that have a propensity just to not do the right thing, and they know this going into it. Mm -hmm. um, we need, they need to learn about de-escalation measures. Um, they need to employ social workers on police forces and have these really be community minders, people who are respectful and wanting to know the communities that they're, that they're there to serve. Um, that's, that's the one thing I would hope people would keep in, you know, keep, keep in mind that no one's talking about eliminating a police force. It's just about reshaping what that looks like and, and creating more accountability around that. Right, right. Creating a curriculum, like you were saying, the education, creating a requirement for criminal justice, economic psychology, you know, spending time in a neighborhood that you'll be assigned to and, and they're like, sort of like an internship, you know what I mean, as a community, under a community leader, so that you have a better understanding of where you're going, even if you don't live there, um, because who knows if that will change, but they will have to be integrated in some way before they can serve in a neighborhood. There's a, there's a whole interesting and beautiful curriculum you could have around understanding human nature, Human, econo human like economic systems, human psychology, that I think before you, you can, you know, have such a big impact on a person's fate, um, you should be required to have some kind of understanding of where they come from. Mm -hmm. yeah. I agree. I agree with everything that everyone said, of course, but you know, one of the things having done this work and been doing this work, that what we need to do is educate the public, right? We need to educate yeah. the public. Curriculum. One of the things that we've been working on, you know, just personally with me and a couple of my people is that creating that education and public curriculum, right? Because one of the things people in Connecticut don't know, we got 107 police departments, right? 
We got 107 police departments. So you, you could be playing your music in Norwalk, Connecticut, loud or whatever, and nobody say anything. But you go over to Westport, whole different law, whole different police department. So we got 107 different uh, modalities that we could, within just traveling across the state, you could inter intervene in seven different rules and regulations. So understanding that first, but also understanding that the police operate under leadership, right? So it starts at the top. You know, in any business, how the business is run is through leadership, right? And you know, this is something that I've heard from my colleagues in the task force. Some of these chiefs are proactive and they are, they are all about you know, humanity and treating people equally, then some of these chiefs are chiefs that came up through the ranks and don't have education for me is the key. So we're going to keep it 100 if we can, right? So education is a factor. So if you're a chief that started as a rookie, never went to college, and then you ended up as a chief, uh, you know, now because you've been here 30 years, so now you're a chief, You only information you have is what you learned when you were a rookie. So that's what you're going to promote at the highest level, whereas, you know, someone else that may have taken some educational classes, someone else, you know, and, and we understand as city people, we should be checking our mayors and our prosecutors or definitely the mayor, the leaderships in our cities. What's your view on police accountability? What do you expect from your police departments? Just like the mayor in Rochester, she should be firing people. She should be letting people go when they are not in adherence to what she oversees. We don't see a lot of termination from leadership. We don't see, we see there are some examples, New Jersey and other places, even New Haven was taking a step in the right direction when it came to leadership. But we want to see more action from the top. Like if you violate someone's human rights, you might be fired. You probably will be fired. You shoot someone in, in this state, you will be prosecuted. Until we start putting that message out there, this is going to continue. You know, if I knew just like people are really struggling with the whole insuring police officers, right? That, oh, that's a big thing here. All these police officers, oh my God. Oh yeah, well don't shoot nobody. Your house and your family won't have to worry about where they're going to live at. Stop shooting people for no reason. If you violate the law, you should be charged. You charge people on a daily basis. So why are you, why should you be exempt? You know, and this is what we mm -hmm. have kind of back and forth with. They show, oh, well, they want us to buy insurance. Yeah, I want you to buy insurance because you've been proving that you cannot do this job correctly without assaulting people or treating people of color a certain way. So yeah, you might need some insurance because you might need to, you might lose your house if you shoot somebody or violate somebody's human rights. <laughs> There's got to be some consequences, right? All of us, yeah. in, in any, you know, any other profession, there are consequences. If you're a medical doctor, you have malpractice because there are times when you hey. might be called on the carpet for not doing um, what you were asked to do. Um, most professions, there is some form of, I mean, literally in our society. And so it is, in fact, time for there to be some accountability, without a doubt, without a doubt. Sahiba, so you wanted to get in? Yeah, I just, I want to um, say that I, can you guys hear me first and foremost? Yes. yes. Okay, great. I want to say, um, Daryl, again, uh, yes, I agree. It's great to be on a panel with you as always, and sitting down, you know, my colleague, and you know, my brother in the fight and, the, and in the movement. Um, and to meet you guys, Kimberly and Shauna and Miss Joelle, 
you know, this is great. I thank you for having me. I want to agree with everyone, and I want to add that the people need to be educated on the laws of voting. Not just voting for presidency, not just voting, you know, we need to vote for the mayor, not just the mayor, but also the city council, uh, the democratic town committees, all of, from the from the local all the way up to the to the highest level. And um, we need to start going to those um, city council meetings, the community town council meetings. People don't go. People are not involved. We need to get involved. In order for all of this to happen and this to work, the community needs to get involved. And on a lower level, because we think the presidency, and even me, before I became aware, thought, oh, let me vote for the presidency, and then things will change. And that's not where it changed. It changes on the lower level, on the municipal level, and then it goes up to higher ranks. We need to become more involved in the political for the for the um, accountability to actually work because then we'll know the laws, we'll know what's right, we'll know our rights, and then we can hold a police um, force accountable to what it is that they're supposed to do. Um, and then we can also hold the elected officials accountable for not holding the police accountable. And that's where I believe we need to, to, to step in as well. Um, there's a lot of things that, you know, we, we walk around complacent. We walk around in our own little bubble and not seeing outwardly. And I believe that this is one of the reasons why, you know, the training that they're getting now is from overseas where you can have the chokehold and that can put somebody, not just put them to sleep, but actually cut off their breathing, um, their breathing line to kill them. And that is that that comes from Pakistan, the Palestinians. They are we're being trained, the police department is being trained from on on tactical measures to actually disarm armies, not people, armies. So what training they're getting from over there, they're bringing it into our communities and they're utilizing a Daryl said it early, like target practice. We're just we're just oh we gotta we gotta get this in today. So we wanna see we think he's doing something. You know, and they're using us for these practice measures and um just killing us. So when we talk about what is we need to let them know during for voting is that the only way we can make this change and see the change we wanna be the change we wanna see in the world is by getting involved. The community needs to get involved. You need to vote. You need to become a registered voter. You need to utilize your voting power. You need to fill in that absentee ballot because you never know what's going to happen during the voting time because you, sometimes you might not be able to make it, but you know what? You can send that absentee ballot in and you, you, you're counting. And we need to just address the people and educate the people about what it means to, to how change looks and how change takes place um, from a smaller scale to a larger scale for, for us to say, yes, I can see the change. Because a lot of times people don't see the change and they get discouraged. I hear people all the time, oh, I'm not going to vote. My vote ain't going to matter. It doesn't matter. Look what happened with Trump. Look what happened with this one. Look what happened with that one. But if we educate them to see, well, you know what? If it can happen here, then you can know how it can happen there. And that's what I, you know, that's how I see that. So I agree with everybody, and thank you for that. Yeah. Absolutely. So as we, as we think about, um, you know, that last point that Tahiba made, right, getting involved, 
making sure we're educated about the process of voting, what your vote is, what you are entitled to, where you vote, and how you vote. Um, there are a number of organizations that are on the ground um, going door to door, even in spite of COVID, making sure that people are registered to vote. If you have applied for an absentee ballot, making sure that you know where to drop that abs absentee ballot. Um, you know, dealing with not as much in Connecticut that we know of, but voter suppression is very real in a mm -hmm. number of areas that prevent people. Um, and, and one thing that we need to be aware of in this this happens um, around the country is the notion of individuals being um, um, the roles being sort of um, cleared after a certain point of time. If you haven't voted, you know, you get there on election day and suddenly your name is not on the roll. Um, so we have to be really um, aware about what it means to vote, what our right is to vote and what we need to do now um, leading up to that point. The other really critical, important piece that is um, that is something that I'm not sure that everyone totally understands is the importance of the census and ensuring that we get the right resources to our communities based upon the individuals who are there. It is simply not enough to say, I don't wanna tell the government who I am. It is critically important to your towns and your cities that you are counted so that your towns and cities are able to get the resources that we all deserve in our towns and cities. So if mm -hmm. you have not yet, completed the census. That is another important act that is a right and that is a, a responsibility that we have as citizens within this country. Sahiba, did you Thank want to? Thank you for that. Thank you for that um, census. I didn't realize how important the census was, is, until I went to a, a webinar, uh, I mean, a conference on the census. And um, once I realized what, you know, how important it is, I made sure that every person in my household was counted for, and the people in, in two neighbors down. Did you do your census? Did you do your census? And when we, we did a book bag drive a couple of weeks ago, and there was a guy out there doing voting rights, and I was also talking to them about census people that came up. And believe it or not, half of the people in the project did not know what the census was. Mm. They was like, what's the census? And they don't even recall getting it in the mail. They probably thought it was junk mail and threw it out and I told them like you need to get in, you need to get involved because that brings money into your community and once I said that they were like oh my gosh for real and I had to give them the information for the census so yeah I appreciate you think thank you for bringing that up yeah and there and a couple of folks mentioned it as well um, from our viewers there are also opportunities at minimum to even work for the census. Um, there are individuals who are hired and trained to go door to door to ensure that everyone is counted. Um, so to your point, you know, there's an opportunity for you to help there as well. Um, a couple of, go ahead, I'm sorry. Somebody, No, sorry. I was saying, okay, yeah, that's good, no, yeah. no. There are a couple of, as we, as we wrap up this evening, it seems like we never have enough time to get through all of the different topics, but I'm just trying to scroll through some of the questions that were offered. Some of them I think we have addressed. Um, we did talk a little bit about um, police accountability. And I also, I pulled up the flyer that you referenced, Daryl, because I know someone else who's on the task force and they had sent it to me, um, the listening sessions that are available. So we can provide the information um, more broadly. I'm trying to think of how to get this flyer into the chat. 
Um, but essentially, the Police um, Transparency and Accountability Task Force, as Daryl said earlier, is holding listening sessions. There are several remaining um, Thursday, September 17th, and Thursday, September 24th, from 10 to noon and 6 to 8 on each of those days. And if you aren't able to do that, you actually can email your testimony, written testimony, to, um, to an email address that is available. So we will figure out somehow to get this flyer out um, because there were many, many questions around um, different components of police accountability, whether it be police and prosecutors who falsify reports to secure convictions. We talked about the chokehold. There was another question around um, laws that have been, been put into place or have there been any laws put into place in Connecticut regarding the mishandling of the excessive force on people of color, including the mentally ill, PTSD, and conditions that our police are not trained in. So we talked a little bit about that um, as, as Kimberly addressed, you know, some of the training that's required and, and not as much to, you know, totally get rid of, but to retrain um, police to be um, supporters and protectors and guardians of our communities and not mm -hmm. enforcers, right? So really changing right. that paradigm. Um, just scrolling through some of the questions. You know, one of them I think is interesting. We have a few minutes left and I want to make sure that each of you get a, a final word. But this is an interesting one um, to close on, but I do, I have a closing question. So I'm going to ask this first and then I'll ask the closing question. But this question I think is really interesting. Um, do you think that we are too focused on waiting for a savior or a leader to make the changes and or the election to bring about change? What are your thoughts about that? I mean, obviously we know the election is looming um, and, and we do in fact hope that there will be change as it relates to that. But do you think that we're too focused on waiting for someone to create that change? What's our responsibility to create that change? Go ahead, Kimberly. That's, it. it's, that's a, it's an interesting question. And I guess just thinking about, you know, through history, there have there's there's always been a change agent or a leader. You know, you think about Martin Luther King and what was happening during the civil rights era. Um, I think a lot of us thought that maybe Barack Obama would be the change agent, and to a large extent, he was. But right now, I've said oftentimes to to friends and my family, we don't really have that voice. Like who who is that spin doctor or talking head even? I know we all watch the news every night and you hear these, you know, you hear different supporting opinions, but there's no real clear leader in all of this. And I, I, I wonder if we did have that person, that voice or someone to rally around, we might feel differently, feel mm -hmm. more empowered and a little bit, a little bit with a stronger direction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Others on that, on that topic? I saw that I saw that question in the chat and I thought it was very interesting and I really appreciate it, right? So, you know, for me, um, you know, my journey, I when I when I was in a cell in West Wing 25 cell in Hartford Correctional, I found the purpose-driven life, right? And I have found purpose by being in that cell, right? So I found that we all have this purpose. We all have purpose. Sometimes we have to be our own leaders. I always say that someone sometimes you are the uh, teacher. And other times you are the student. We all have to pick up our own things and move forward. We don't have that. We don't have that uh, Martin Luther King. We do have them in little spurts. But you know, right now in this movement, the young people have picked up this, this, this movement and said, listen, we are no longer, I am not my 
grandfather. I am not my so-and-so. If you do something to me, we're going to have a problem. And, you know, and they so the movement and not even promoting physical violence, what they're saying is like enough is enough. So we need to, to honor that. And when we talk about um, also we were talking about voting, we need to bring those powerful people that are in the community up so we can vote for them likewise. And so, you know, we're always having to settle for, like even in this presidential election, we're voting for a former prosecutor or we're supposedly, I don't know who y'all voting for, but my options are a former prosecutor and the person that wrote one of the toughest crime bills in the country. I gotta be, or the other side of this of, um, pendulum. And everyone says to me, even my mother, mom, forgive me, she says, well, you know, you got to give them a second chance. Word? That's what I've been telling the whole country about my black and brown people. <laughs> give them a second chance. Now, I got to give these presidential people a second chance? Come on, man. I'm with second chances. If it wasn't for second, third, and fourth chances, I wouldn't be here tonight. So I'm very on that. But listen, man, we got to make changes. So we have to understand what we're going into, right? And, you know, everybody's like, well, it's the worst of two evils. We got to start finding somebody that we can really put our money on. I believe in Barack, too, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, here we are with more killings and, more, and no, no real sweeping action from the top. If you kill somebody, I don't care, black or white, if you're in a position of protection and you kill somebody, you will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And until we get to that point in this country, we're not going to, we're going to keep seeing people getting murdered and we're going to keep seeing people feel free. Like when you see these killings, they're, they're not even, there's no remorse. Like how do you show up for work tomorrow after you just killed somebody? Like, you know, they're like, man, wow, no, no, nothing, no, nothing. Come on, man. There's a problem with that. I don't know a lot of people who look to government sincerely, like elected government, as like a savior anyway. I don't know somebody who would choose Trump over their pastor. I think if you had to pick a hero, you're going to pick the pastor. You know, you're going to pick the, the community leader that has helped your school. You're going to pick the community leader that you saw picking up trash a, a month ago on your street. You're going to look to those people. I don't know a whole lot of people who have faith in political leaders. And I think that's sad, but it's very true. And I agree that we need more people who we can um, have that kind of respect and um, trust in. But when you don't, or when you look at these people and they're like, you're choosing the less of two evils, um, that's when you should pick up your purpose, as you said, um, and, and invest in it and become the best person you can. I don't want to be in these streets looking crazy because I teach children. I've taught hundreds of children. They don't need to see me on the news looking like a fool. You know what I mean? Like, I'm in the community creating productions and exhibits and talking about culture and, and you know, creating poetry stages and doing art and, and in, in elevating the image of Black people the best way I can. So if I go into the world and do something outrageous, I'm discrediting myself, but I'm also breaking the trust of my community. Mm -hmm. 
So I think as individuals, we should lead with integrity. Like we're looking at how Chadwick Boseman passed away. There's so many people who passed away and you had to question their integrity, mm-hmm. right? We never have, I don't, I haven't heard one person question his integrity because he lived right. And so if more of us try to live well, and we're going to make mistakes, but at least if we're trying to live well and do what we can to make it better in our own way, and we might not be Barack Obama, but you're a teacher, but you're a community leader, but you have a house and some Kool-Aid and kids will be 50 years old talking about Miss Thelma who gave them juice when they were eight. Like you have something to contribute that will help a community. And so you can have the big goals, but you can also have community goals. You can also have a street goal or a house goal, but have something that will make it better. So leaders, you might not, the way it looks in this moment right now today, it's real sketchy. We might not have somebody better than Biden, but in our neighborhoods we do. You know, I live in Bridgeport and Bridgeport gets a bad rep, but there are churches who feed people there are there are community centers that have kids. I know so many black teachers in this city. There are there there are so many good things, but that's not what gets discussed. You know, there's so much art, there's so much culture, but that's not what ends up on the news. You know, <laughs> you hear all the bad things, and I'm not saying those don't exist. But what about showing people that these things do exist? So maybe they won't be on the street tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Right. And in, in enlightening that, that, that's so deep. And I just wanted to interject this. Thank you, Shana, for the work that you do, especially because it, do, it does start with our youth, the young people, you know, and letting them know that they could be anything in the world. Because, you know, I remember growing up and people told me I couldn't be this, I couldn't be that. And the people that I idolized were drug dealers. And, you know, I followed that path. But if I lived in a suburban neighborhood and saw different things, I might have followed that path. So being those role models in the community are super important. And I really appreciate you saying that and the work that you do with our young people. So I commend you. But I also got to throw in there. Y'all see how she threw the icy lady in there on y'all real slick? Icy lady's real. <laughs> I'm trying to act like y'all didn't hear about the icy lady. That. We always remember the lady that had the icies, man. Miss Shannon. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, I, I would like to just piggyback off of that as well and say we can be the change that we want to see in the world. Mm-hmm. Exactly. When I came home, I had a different mindset about life and about what I wanted my the rest of my life to be and how I wanted to live for myself and others. And I hit the ground running and I started when I was inside of prison and I continued it coming home I had no longer had a title entitlement issues and felt like I was entitled to something that I never was entitled to and I had a regard and a respect for human life and um I was walking in dignity and I walk should I say I walk in dignity and integrity today so for us to want to, there's no superheroes. We are all superheroes. Mm-hmm. There's each and every one of us in our own right, in our own skills, in our own expertise are superheroes. But we have to operate in that, in that heroism. We have to move in it. We have to be willing to, to, to take a stand and say, 
Why are you doing that to that young man? What is going on? How can I help you? Is there anything that I can do for you today that can help you get through to just right now? And the little things that, it's the little things that sometimes matters. And I'm not looking for a savior. I have a savior. But what together as a collective, can you hear me No. Yes. Oh, you came back. Yeah, came back. All right. What I'm looking for, <laughs> what I'm looking for is a community. And I feel like I said, we're all superheroes. And what we need is a community collectively join together, join all our forces, all our, all our superpowers together. That will change. And that is why we wouldn't have to look for the president to be the change we want to see. Once we do what we do, she mentioned the icy lady. That's right. I remember the, the, the icy lady. I remember Miss Shannon. My mind was Miss Pearl, right? So I remember this. And, you know, you want to take it back into the old, to the, to the, to the history. We governed, growing up in my neighborhood, we governed our neighborhood. We had a neighborhood watch to where if anything went down in the neighborhood, somebody knew it and somebody was going to be called on it. And you had to take, you had to pay the penance for it. And the police wasn't in our communities as much as they are in our communities now. We put, we took all of the things that we used to do in governing ourselves and put it onto the police officers and put it onto the elected officials. And they don't, they're the ones that's actually perpetrating the, the oppression. We need to take that back and govern ourselves, become a community. I know I've, I've heard of the Geechee Nation, the Geechee countries, country but down in Georgia where they governed themselves. And I remember that. That's, that's something that we grew up on. I'm not Geechee or anything, but that's something that we, we, I grew up on as a child. And if I, I was sassy, I lived on one end of the street. If I sassed somebody on the other end of the street, there was a there was a mother we called them mothers. There was a mother that had the up the right to whoop my behind for being sassy to somebody else at this end of the street. And if I sassed her, trust me when I tell you, she took me to my grandmother and I got another pinching or whooping for being sassy. I'm not saying beat your child. That's don't please don't get me wrong. What I'm saying is that we need to be able to live in a community to where I know that if I do something, my child do something now here, Miss Ann is going to be watching and she's going to, I'm going to get in trouble because I know I can't do it because I know she's watching. Mm -hmm. We, we move so far away from that. When church removed from state, when they said church, take, remove church and state, that's when I, a lot of this stuff started just ha happening. She mentioned churches in the community. The churches and community, their hands are tied because they removed church out of um, church and separated church from state. The churches are the glue to the community that where everybody, when something went down, people ran to the church. We don't know how to run to the church anymore. So what we do is we pick up guns, we pick up violence, we pick up drugs, we pick up stuff. There's no savior coming for us because the savior that we look into in the presidential campaigns and all of this other stuff are the same oppressors that's going to keep us oppressed that's out for their own agenda. Like you said, he wrote one of the worst crime bills, 1994. Like, really? Uh, we 
know what all of that did to us. Then we got Kamala. It's the worst of two evils. Why we have to choose from two evils? I don't, I, and I have a problem like cho- choosing from two evils. We know what we want. We know what we need. We know what we need to survive. We survived slavery. We survived the slave ships. Those of us that are standing here today that's on this call, one of our ancestors had a strong, was strong enough and had that will in them to survive the, the, the trade, the slave, the, 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 the transatlantic, right? Then they survived actually being a slave. They went with Harriet Tubman, I guess. I'm going to say that. And they came across that water to make sure that we have a chance to live and survive and not go do what they went through. We are our saviors. We just need to operate and tap into that and pull it out and utilize it as a collective, though. Not individually, not in the silo, but as a collective. And I believe that if we, once we empower our minds and ourselves to do that as a unit, there's no stopping. There's no stopping us. We will take, that's what they're afraid of, to be honest with you. That's what they're afraid of because they know that once we unite, there's no stopping us. But we don't see that. We don't hear that. We don't understand that. So we, we're out to get one another, and we still having them get us as well. So we are our saviors. I don't see a savior. I think we need to just tap into our own strengths and our own powers and be the change that we need for us. And I and think my- we need to illuminate the people who do as well. Like, there's a lot of people who do. I don't want to say that we all do that because there's a lot of people who, who fall into that category. But there's a lot of people who love themselves, who encourage the community, who, who fight for something better. And all, we're all here. We're all people who do that. And I think, I think those people need to be more visible and illuminated. And when I choose the lesser of two evils, I'm going to choose Biden. But then I need to choose some people who um, can, can do what we do on a larger scale and figure out ways to elevate them and and you know when you change the language the things we say get penetrated into us over and over and over again mm-hmm. and we need to figure out ways to penetrate goodness and positivity and and change so that we can we can walk it and that's that's really that it's proven that if you feel you know you feel another person's heartbeat you you get in tune with life as they put babies on their father's chest to connect with them when they're just born we have a human power to penetrate goodness into each other and we need to take advantage of that like when um i think it was mike brown when he died everybody kept saying i am mike brown i am mike i am not mike brown i don't mike brown doesn't want me to be mike brown i love that the community wants to surround him and build him but he would never want my fate to be his fate we need to speak life into ourselves so that we don't have a lot of people in these streets choosing these negative negative images and ideas because that's what they hear all the time. You know, in Bridgeport, I've been working with these kids and I, I've been teaching the history of Little Liberia, which was a free black community on the South End in the 1800s. And they fought for voting rights. They had their own salons and, and they had whaling industry. When P.T. Barnum was the richest black man, I mean, the richest man in um, Connecticut, a black woman was the second wealthiest person under him in the 1850s, Mary Freeman. We don't hear about that. When I go into these schools and I teach that history to these kids, 
what miss a black woman oh my god you know what i mean all of a sudden they're empowered now they're looking at that community completely differently because i've given them a different narrative mm -hmm. you know you talk about you talk about what does bridgeport mean to you is the first thing i ask them what do you think about when you and they have all these negative things i give them that history and the whole conversation changes. Mm -hmm. our language our words have power and we don't credit that enough our our touch our, our presence our integrity that has power and I, I'm very mindful, especially because I have a platform of how I speak about my space, about where I live and about my work. Even if I have my own internal dialogue that I have to check often, when I go out into the world, I wanna make sure that I'm repeating things that empower other people because the longer you believe something, the more real it becomes. But if right. you change it, people will wanna change it with you. Yeah. So I, you know, I, it's interesting. I had, I had a last question for all of you, but I think that you all have shared some of that wisdom in the context of the conversation that we just had, um, the inspiration, the empowerment, the motivation that we owe ourselves as individuals to be able to press forward. Um, there are some things, some tangible things that we must do in community to begin to see the changes that many of us on tonight's, um, on tonight's Zoom asked about. Um, I just want to really quickly go through and share some resources with you that were shared by some of our viewers um, related to some of the conversations we had. Reclaim Your Vote is the organization you can search the name of that organization. You can sign up to send postcards to voters in states where people may have fallen off the rolls. There is, and I actually got the text too, there's an American community survey that the census is running. They send you a text if you provided your cell phone number in the census where they're trying to get some additional information. Um, so encouraging folks to complete those surveys as well, or at least get more information. Um, there's a book that's out. Um, Dr. Mesa Akbar's Beyond Ally, The Pursuit of Racial Justice. It's a great book if you're looking for ways to become an ally and how to join up. One of the questions that we answered earlier, um, I think I have gotten everything that was shared as a resource. Oh, one more, um, become a poll worker. So there's a website also that was shared, um, both the link for Reclaim Our Vote and the link for how to become a poll worker. Um, safely, of course, with wearing your mask, if you can and are able to volunteer in that way, um, you can do that. I know that there are also organizations that are um, that are canvassing individuals to help get people to the polls, in addition to helping people to turn in their absentee ballots. If, if you did not always already know, voting is a critical component of what we each need to do um, and educate ourselves about our vote, who you're voting for, why you're voting for them, and how important it is, not only at the national level, but absolutely within your local communities as well. Um, I really wanna thank all of our panelists this evening 
for sharing a bit of themselves with all of us, sharing their stories, their lived experiences, their opinions and their perspectives um, as we demonstrate the fact that our community is one that is not a monolith, that we are a community of individuals who all have something to contribute. And as we think about the unspoken truths, the learnings that we have, the education that is available to us about those things that we may not know of, um, there are opportunities for us to begin to speak our truths. And all of you, our panelists, did that this evening. So I thank you for your willingness to engage in this dialogue. I did want you to do one thing for me because I love to end on a note where we can take something with us. And my, my hope is that you all will be able to share really briefly and succinctly what is one thing that gives you hope as we move into this next season in our country. So I'm just gonna rapid fire. I'm gonna go around in the way that I see you on the screen really quickly. One sentence, I'm not gonna say one word, but one sentence, my brothers and sisters, what gives you hope? Kimberly. The enthusiasm of our youth. Um, we had a summer program this year at the Amistad Center focusing on high schoolers and if I had more than one sentence to share, I can tell you some amazing things that came out of that six weeks that they spent with us virtually. Are you talking about- they're, 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 they're gonna be ones to take us to the next level. So you all are going to wanna look at amistadcenter.org. It is the Amistad Center for Art and Culture located in Hartford. Um, it is inside of the Wadsworth Athenaeum, which is the oldest museum in the nation. But we have a phenomenal, um, well, I was going to say exhibition, but a phenomenal collection of art that and, and culture that raises us up. And as I referenced, it was also um, a, a phenomenal jazz concert last night available on Facebook. So if you don't know the Amistad Center, now you know. Instagram, Facebook, check it out. Learn about the summer program and all of the wonderful programs that lift up um, the Black community and the Black experience. Can I say one other thing? One, mm -hmm. one, one more sentence? Yeah, one <laughs> so more sentence. The, so now Daryl gets two to Heba and Johnny. <laughs> no, so so to, the, to the other panelists, um, Dana, Tahiba, and Daryl, it was wonderful to meet you. And if there are things that you think that I can be helpful with by way of the Amistad Center, you know, I have a, a, a space and a form and the ability. I'd love to hear more about what it is you're doing in the community. And we really do pride ourselves on being a community-based organization. So please reach out if you think that I can help um, advance your missions, things you're doing out there in the community. Thank you. Daryl, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Daryl, what gives you hope? Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you for the opportunity. This gives me hope, the uh, opportunity, every time we get to share our voice, you know, that gives me hope. But you know what really, just the whole resiliency of black and brown people, man. We are always, always going through something. And, you know, we find a way to make nothing out of something, you know. And um, Marianne Williamson always says, you know, you know, it does nobody any purpose for us to, like, dim our light so others feel good. So we got to keep shining. We got to keep out, be out there shining. Sometimes we're the only one talking like this. But we got to keep doing that. So, you know, the resiliency that is in, in each and every one of us that came through from, as Tahiba shared, with the slaves, um, we have that, that's internal, that we just keep fighting. When everything, the lights is off, we hungry, we starving, 
who get up the next day and keep fighting. And that's what gives me hope that, you know, the fight is going to still be in us. None of us are taking any days off. We're here, we're in the building, and we're going to keep on fighting and just, you know, keep opening up these spaces for this dialogue. And, you know, I will be at the Amistad Center. I might go over there and get me some art done at Shana's spot. You know, to see what's going on, man. We're in the building. We're all connected, man. So I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank okay, you. Okay, with your 25 sentences. I'm just joking. I had to get you. <laughs> <laughs> Sahiba, <laughs> what brings you, what gives you hope? What gives me hope is to see the smiles on the people's faces when they know that there's people out there that actually care for them and that they can see them and they're touching them and they're tangible. They, what gives me hope is people like us on this panel that doesn't have a problem to speak untethered and to say what, what needs to be said at any given time that we're asked to say it. Um, what gives us gives me hope is to know that there are, we have allies out there that's willing to stand with us and fight with us for the Black Lives Matter movement, for the movement of ending incarceration, for the movement of ending poverty and using poverty as a crime, you know? Uh, you know so that's what gives me hope. What gives me hope is that the accountability bill was passed. That was gives me hope because now we could probably shape it to what we need it to be for the safer communities. When you said you was coming to serve and protect, you actually serve and protect and not harm and kill and maim. Um, so yeah, that's what gives me hope. And the fact that I still have breath on this side of the earth that I can wake up today and say this and hopefully tomorrow I could do the same thing. So every day that I wake up, and that I'm able to do and stand and fight in a movement and um, speak the speak my words and show my faith and stand in solidarity solidarity with my fellow comrades is what gives me hope. Thank you. She had about 22 sentences. <laughs> I have to throw a little I have to throw a little levity in there. And Shana, bring us home. What gives you hope? Love, God art and all the ways they manifest look at that it. in the clutch with one sentence that's my girl <laughs> <laughs> thank you all so thank much. you Shana. <laughs> <laughs> thank you all so much for this evening for giving of yourselves we hope that those of you who stayed with us and watched learn something and most importantly that you will go out and do something and then yeah. we will all be able to um, to speak our truths. Thank you so much um, to all of the sponsors or partners of this series. Um, this is technically the last in this series, but I'm sure that there will be further dialogue and conversation in service to this community. Thank you all and have a wonderful evening.